Attention, all troops. He's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Retroist. Did you have a cool uncle when you were growing up? My friend had one who tried very hard to be cool, and to accomplish this, he often brought toys, food, any number of things that would endear him to my friend. He was also the occasional babysitter for my friend, and because he was a cool uncle, he was very, very permissive. I mean, my friend, and by extension, all of us, could get away with murder if we were staying over when he was being babysat by this uncle. On one occasion, I went over to my friend's house while he was being watched by the cool uncle and we were going to have a movie marathon and these were videos he picked up at the store some really good ones that we wanted to see pretty sure one of them was raiders of the lost ark we watched that then he pulled out a tape that wasn't labeled it was a very grainy copy of the movie heavy metal i don't know where he got it but he allowed us to watch it and it was interesting but at the same time kind of confusing and more than a little terrifying for me here's the thing though when I was done watching it and had gone home, it's all I could think about. The different scenes, the visuals, the music. I was hooked. I had been turned into a fan of heavy metal, and I didn't even understand half the stuff that was going on in it. In the 90s, I would go to see heavy metal in the theaters when it was re-released, and would eventually own my own copy of heavy metal, which I got when I worked at a video store through a friend of a friend. Heavy metal is one of those movies that is not for everyone, but I do think it is something that everyone should see, because it isn't common to see entertainment like this anymore. It's daring, it's very adult, yet it was animated so it's this strange melding and i really do wish they would make more movies like this nowadays so on today's show i'm going to talk about the movie heavy metal we'll talk about the inspiration for it the magazine we'll talk a little bit about the people in front of and behind the camera we'll talk a little bit about the plot and we'll throw in a few surprises here and there we have an info-packed episode ahead of us so without further ado let's start the show Heavy Metal was a Canadian-produced, animated, science fiction fantasy film that is heavy on adult content. It was directed by Gerald Potterton and produced by Leonard Mogul and Ivan Reitman. Leonard Mogul also produced a magazine that you might have seen or heard of called Heavy Metal. And Heavy Metal got its start in the mid-70s while Mogul was traveling in Paris. He was there to help produce the French edition of the magazine National Lampoon. While there, he discovered a magazine which had come out in January of 1975 called Howling Metal. 
Mogul was smitten and decided to license an American version, but he chose to rename it Heavy Metal, and in 1977, it began its monthly release as a full-color, glossy magazine. When it started, it would just use translated versions of the stories from the French version, Howling Metal, which had pieces by people like Mobius. Later, it would pick up new talent, including American talent. It was really smart to reuse the French version to begin with and translate it because all the work had been done, including the coloring, so to reproduce them in the U.S. must have given significant cost savings. The magazine would eventually change ownership, and it is currently owned by Kevin Eastman. And if you don't know who Kevin Eastman is, he is the co-creator of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. The French magazine stopped publishing in 87, but would resume publishing in 2002. So I said one of the producers is Leonard Mogul, the other one was Ivan Reitman. Ivan Reitman produced National Lampoon's Animal House in 1978. Then he would go on to direct Meatballs in 1979. And from there, his career just shot through the roof with films like Twins, Ghostbusters, Kindergarten Cop, Junior, Dave, and so on and so on. He's a very talented man in the comic realm. When you first start watching Heavy Metal, you will notice that the animation is pretty good. And you might wonder how they did this on their budget. Well, they used a process called rotoscoping. Now, with a little bit more on the rotoscoping process, is Flack with a brand new Talking Tech. Talking Tech. The first time I saw Heavy Metal, I was amazed at how realistic the animation looked. The reason it looks that way is because animators used a technique known as rotoscoping. Rotoscoping involves shooting real people or objects on film, which are then projected onto cells, which are then traced by hand by animators. The device that projects those pictures onto the cells is called, get ready for it, a rotoscope. The rotoscope was invented in 1915 by Max Fleischer, the founder and head of Fleischer Studios, and the man responsible for animating such characters as Betty Boop, Popeye, and Superman. Max and his brother Dave used their new invention for their Out of the Inkwell series, which began in 1919 and featured another well-known Fleischer character, Coco the Clown. Fleischer used the rotoscoping technique heavily in his Superman cartoons, as well as in Gulliver Travels. Based on the great-looking animation that could be achieved using the rotoscope, Disney also used this technique on their first feature-length animated film, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, and continued to use it on most of their feature-length films, including Fantasia, Cinderella, and Alice in Wonderland. Rotoscoping continued to be used throughout the life of hand-animated films. Rotoscope characters appear in both the Beatles' animated film, The Yellow Submarine, and in multiple Ralph Bakshi films, including Wizards, The Lord of the Rings, and American Pop. Rotoscoping allowed animators to get realistic results quickly and inexpensively, and eventually rotoscoping made its way into the 80s where it appeared on such animated shows as Black Star and He-Man. The same technique eventually found its way to video games, Developers and artists found that by using the same techniques as the animators were using, they could create realistic-looking animations in their games. Some games you may have heard of that use this technique include Karataka, Prince of Persia, King's Quest VI, Blackthorn, Flashback, and one of my favorites, Another World. Rotoscoping has somewhat of a bad rap in the animation world, and many artists have written off the technique as simply tracing and not very artistic. That being said, rotoscoping certainly allowed for realistic-looking animation on a cheap budget, and as far as I'm concerned, it added to the style and coolness of heavy metal. Talking 
Thanks, Flack. Now, the plot of heavy metal is both complicated and simple. Complicated in that it jumps from segment to segment, but simple because it's all about this sort of central object that travels through all the segments and causes problems, and that object is the Lochnar. They did all these different segments and would outsource them to different production companies to save money. So there was somewhat of a different look between some of these scenes, but overall it feels fairly consistent. Heavy metal has different segments, but basically revolves around an object called the Lochnar, which is the sum of all evil, who moves through all these different segments and corrupts and endangers humanity. And there's a lot of great segments. Some of them are sillier than others. I particularly like Den and the B-17 storyline. Den is about a geeky kid who becomes this barbarian king. Not sure why that spoke to me. B-17 is about the Lochnar corrupting these soldiers who've died and turning them into zombies, and it freaked me out. The movie begins with a segment called Soft Landing, and it's a strange little scene, and I say strange in heavy metal. In it, a space shuttle is flying over Earth and releases a corvette out of its bay doors. And then the Corvette begins descending into Earth and lands there. That astronaut, whose name is Grimaldi, and that will be the next sequence, drives this car home, and there he's greeted by his daughter, and he pulls out a sphere, and this is the Lochnar. This Lochnar addresses the girl and tells her that he is the sum of all evils, and then begins to tell her about how he has spread his influence through both space and time. Eventually, you get to a story called Tarna, which was inspired by Mobius's Arzak stories. Mobius is a famous artist, author, who created these wonderful stories for Howling Metal about a silent warrior who rides this pterodactyl through these big landscapes, and that story was adapted for the movie by Daniel Goldberg and Len Blum. And it is the warrior in that story who's able to finally defeat the Lochnar. At the end, we return to the very beginning of the story, where the Lochnar we see is also destroyed in front of the little girl, and then the pterodactyl-like creature that was in the final scene appears, and we know that she is the next warrior protector who's going to save us all one day. There was a lot of great voices in heavy metal. First off is the voice of the Lochnar, Percy Rodriguez, who's probably best known for his work as Dr. Harry Miles on Peyton Place. He would also appear as Commodore Stone in the 1967 episode of Star Trek Court Martial and as the narrator in the Michael Jackson 3D extravaganza Captain EO. He's got a great narrator voice, great for movie trailers. Harvey Atkin, who did some voices in a segment called Harry Canyon, played an alien and a henchman. He's probably best known as Morty in the 1979 film Meatballs. Joe Flaherty of SCTV fame played the lawyer in a segment called Captain Stern, and the general in another segment called So Beautiful and So Dangerous. Jackie Burroughs played Catherine in the segment Den, one of my favorite segments as a kid. She also played the voice of the spirit in 1985's Care Bear movie. John Candy did a number of voices, including Den in the Den segment. John Candy passed away in 1994. He was a great actor. He was in Splash, Stripes, Summer Rental, Cool Runnings, Uncle Buck, just to name a few. Eugene Levy appeared in the Captain Stern and So Beautiful and So Dangerous scenes. He's a Canadian actor, singer, writer probably best known to popular audiences as the father in the American Pie films. He's also an SCTV alum. 
Harold Rimus lent voice to Zeke in So Beautiful and So Dangerous. He's an American actor, probably best known as Egon Spengler in Ghostbusters. Very talented guy, passed away in 2014. Also an SCTV alum. Harry Canyon in the Harry Canyon segment was voiced by Richard Romanus. Very talented actor. You're going to hear a little bit more about him in an upcoming segment from Vic Sage. Alice Platon played Gloria in So Beautiful and So Dangerous. She did lots of work in animated features, including Heavy Metal, Doug, My Little Pony, and Felix the Cat. Don Franks did the voice of Grimaldi. Don Franks has done a lot of work, probably though to many people he will be known as the first voice of Boba Fett because he gave voice to Boba Fett in the first appearance of Boba Fett during the Star Wars Holiday Special and he would reprise the role in an episode of Star Wars Droids. Now a little bit more about one of these talented people is Vic Sage with Why Should I Know This Person? Hi friends, Vic Sage here with Why Should I Know This Person? And for this segment, we're going to be taking a look at Heavy Metal's Richard Romanus. Richard was born on February 8, 1943 in Barry, Vermont. He has an older brother named Robert, and of particular interest is that both brothers have at one time appeared in episodes of MacGyver. Richard got his first break in Andy Milligan's 1968 schlock film, The Ghastly Ones. He would quickly gain appearances on The Mod Squad and Mission Impossible before being cast in Martin Scorsese's Mean Streets in 1973, where he co-starred with Robert De Niro, Harvey Keitel, Amy Robinson, and David Carradine, as well as Robert Carradine. The next year, he would appear with Stacey Keach, Margot Kidder, and Frederick Forrest in The Gravy Train. He appeared in episodes of Rhoda and Kojak before he would be cast to provide his voice in an animated feature in 1977. In fact, this would be my first introduction to the actor. God, Avatar, get down. I've seen him. You can't beat him. He's too strong. Avatar, don't do it. Richard provided the voice of the brave elf warrior Weehawk in Ralph Bakshi's 1977 animated masterpiece, Wizards. This would not be the last time he and Bakshi worked together, as he also provided the voice of Vinny in 1982's Hey Good Lookin'. In between those roles, he appeared on Charlie's Angels, Starsky and Hutch, Hawaii Five-O, and The Rockford Files, before appearing in the short-lived TV series Tin Speed and Brown Shoe with Ben Vereen and Jeff Goldblum. He would co-star with Romancing the Stones' Zach Norman in 1980's Sitting Ducks, before landing a role in the TV series Foul Play. In 1981, he would voice the cynical taxicab driver Harry Canyon in the segment entitled Harry Canyon from the animated Heavy Metal. That same year, he would guest star on Fantasy Island. Richard would continue to appear in TV and film with notable appearances in Strike Force, Hardcastle and McCormick, Hunter, Fame, Tales from the Dark Side, Murphy's Law, The A-Team, 1989's Mission Impossible, Oscar, Point of No Return, and The Sopranos. This has been Vic Sage with Why Should I Know This Person, signing off until next time. Thanks, Vic. Another big star of heavy metal is the music, and there's a lot of great music in this film. Now, with a little bit more about the music you will hear in heavy metal, and its soundtrack is The Zerbinator with Sounds Retro. The music found in the movie Heavy Metal is one for the books. 
You had some great musicians that put their talents together to help make this movie. Musicians like Sammy Hagar, a band called Riggs, a great band called Devo, a wonderful band called Blue Oyster Cult, an incredible band called Cheap Trick, a gentleman by the name of Don Felder, another gentleman by the name of Donald Fagan, a really cool heavy metal band called Nazareth, another awesome heavy metal band back when they started called Journey, one incredible heavy metal band called Grand Funk Railroad. I'm kidding about that. A band called Black Sabbath, which actually, in my opinion, had started heavy metal from the very beginning of its roots. A band called Trust, and a beautiful young lady by the name of Stevie Nicks. But this movie wouldn't be complete without the truest musician to the composition of the movie, and that would have been Mr. Elmer Bernstein. American composer Mr. Elmer Bernstein lived from April 4th, 1922 until August 18th, 2004. And during that time, he wrote over 150 pieces of music, 50 years worth of television and film music that he created for some of the most memorable films that have ever been produced. Elmer Bernstein was not related to Leonard Bernstein, but they were very good friends. He was also very good friends with John Landis. And a list that I have for you, you're going to see that he's worked with John Landis quite a bit. But first, I'd like to go down a list of some of my favorite television shows and movies that Elmer Bernstein's worked on during his lifetime. All the music for Gunsmoke in 1955. The music for Ten Commandments in 1956. To Kill a Mockingbird in 1962. He did True Grit in 1969. With John Landis, National Lampoon's Animal House in 1978. Meatballs in 1979. Airplane in 1980. Blues Brothers in 1980. And during the time that he was working on heavy metal in 1981, he was also working on Honky Talk Freeway, Going Ape, and The Chosen, An American Werewolf in London, and Stripes, all released in 1981. Can't imagine working on that much music at one time. 1983, he was responsible for writing all the beautiful background scores to Michael Jackson's Thriller video, again working with the great John Landis. Before his passing in 2004, Elmer wrote a score for the movie Far From Heaven in 2002, in which he got an Academy Award nomination for Best Original Score and a Golden Globe nomination for Best Original Score. During his career, he won five Grammy Awards, three Tony Awards, two Golden Globe Awards, an Academy Award, and an Emmy Award. So the next time you're watching the movie Heavy Metal, I highly suggest that you take some time to listen to some of the background score music and pay homage to good old Mr. Elmer Bernstein for all the hard work he did. So until next time, this has been Zerbinator with this edition of Sounds Retro. Thanks, Zerbinator. The film was released on August 7, 1981. It had a budget of $9.3 million and would gross nearly $20 million. Critical response wasn't great. I've tried reading some old newspapers and magazine articles. Some of the better reviews talk about the music and the fact that it's mindless and adolescent fun. After its initial run, the film started showing up for midnight theatrical screenings and started to take off. Also, people started watching it on cable channels or getting bootleg videotapes of it and passing it around. And from that, people were able to convert fans who had never seen it originally. In 1996, the movie would officially be released on VHS and Laserdisc. It would also get re-released in theaters in March 8th of that year. 
That is where I would see it in theaters. In 2011, it was released on Blu-ray. So if you've never seen Heavy Metal, it's out there just about everywhere to see. You can even find it online, not just through streaming services, because people often post it all around. So just do a quick search. You'll probably find it if you don't want to own it, but you should because it's a good film. In 2000, a sequel to Heavy Metal, aptly named Heavy Metal 2000, was released. The film is a loose follow-up to the 1981 version. But instead of being based on the stories from the older heavy metal, they're based on the graphic novel The Melting Pot, which was written by Kevin Eastman, Simon Bisley, and Eric Talbot. The film did not do exceptionally well, and a lot of heavy metal fans who wanted to see a more of a continuation of what we had seen earlier were disappointed that it was a completely different format and story. Around 2008, there started to be discussion of reviving heavy metal, and various directors have been attached to the project, including David Fincher, who really wanted to get it done. But even after a whole bunch of people seemed to be wanting to sign on, and I'm not sure how legitimate those signings were, the film fell apart in 2008. 2011, director Robert Rodriguez announced that he had purchased the rights to heavy metal and was going to make a new animated film, but we're still in a holding pattern here in 2014. I'm not sure exactly how much of a market there is for an adult animated film. I think people are interested in such things, but until it gets released, I guess we'll never know. In the meantime, heavy metal is available out there. If you are a cool uncle, I caution you it might be cool to show young kids heavy metal before their time, but it can also be very confusing to them. So maybe wait a little. Let them be teenagers before they discover heavy metal. I think letting them make the decision to when they want to discover heavy metal and enjoy it is probably the cooler thing to do. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, you can drop by the website at www.retroist.com. You can also follow me on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at facebook.com slash retroist.com and twitter.com slash retroist. The music you hear in the show is by Peachy. If you have musical needs, you can email Peachy at peachy at retroist.com. Thanks to Vic Sage for another great Why Should I Know This Person. If you have feedback for Vic, you can email him at vicsage at retroist.com. Vic Sage also has his own podcast on the retroist called Saturday Frights. And you can listen to Saturday Frights right there, or go to iTunes and search Saturday Frights. Thanks to Rob Flack O'Hara for another great talking tech. You can find Rob on the Retroist regularly. You can also find him at his website, robohara.com, where he posts his own podcasts that he participates in. And they are all great, so check them out. Thanks to the Zerbinator for another great sounds retro. You can find more info about the Zerbinator and his podcasts and music at Zerbinatorland, which is at zerbinator.wordpress.com. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. Who, who wants the Loch Norm? I don't think I should talk about that. This has been a retrospective production. Goodbye.